welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. 11 today, if you guys want to turn there in your Bible, I'm really excited about getting back to our Outcast message series. Uh, this has been something that's been such a blessing for me. It's been tough study, but I just really have uh, felt like God is working in the hearts of us as a church. I know He's been working in mine. In Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy of Jesus. It tells about his ancestors leading up to him, everybody that, that was in that genealogy. And we find five people who don't really belong. And it's not because they don't belong because they're incorrectly put in there. It's just that in this time, genealogies always dealt with men. Never, ever would women be added into a genealogy. But five out of the 47 names listed in this genealogy are women. And so that leads us to this question. What did they do to get this honor of being in Jesus' genealogy? What did they do to... to, to earn that honor? What, what kind of people were they? And over the past couple weeks, we've studied Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. And, and what we found is they did nothing. They, they were regular humans. They were outcasts. They lived dirty, messy, broken lives. And it's a, the story is about what Jesus Christ did for them, what God did in their lives. So two weeks ago, we ended the, with the story of Ruth. And, and I love the story of Ruth. It's a Hallmark movie. Everybody loves Ruth. It's like a feel-good ending. It should end with, and they lived happily ever after. That should be the end of the story. But we ended with Ruth, and she gets her man. She marries Boaz, and the two of them have a child named Jesse. And then Jesse, of course, is the parent of a guy we're all familiar with, David. Raise your hand if you've heard of David. Okay, never mind. We'll say amen and go home. No, I'm kidding. We, we've got a lot of story here. Now, I love the story of David. It's one that we look at a lot in like, as a, as a younger person, I was like, man, I wish I was David. I, I wish that's who I was. I wish I had that heart for God. I wish I could kill giants with slingshots is really what I care about more than anything else. And David is a really special story. And what we see is that the Israelites demanded a king. They said, we want a king that rules over us. We want to be like every other country. And God said, I'm your king. You don't need a king. But the Israelites being hard-headed, like me and you, they said, no, no, no. We want a king. We want an earthly, personal king that sits on a throne that tells us what to do. Which, you know, for Americans, that seems like a dumb idea. Like we don't really do kings here, right? And so God brings up a man named Saul who becomes their king. And of course he messes up and does some things. And, and God comes to the prophet Samuel and says, I've, I've rejected Saul as king. His line will not be king. I want you to go anoint the new king. Go to Jesse's house and I will tell you which of his sons will be the new king. And he gets to Jesse's house and there's, there's these big, strong, strapping young men. It's like, that's got to be a king. And God goes, no, not that one. And not that one either, and not that one, until he finally goes, Jesse, do you have any more boys? Because we're, we're running out of people. And Jesse says, the youngest, David, the, the shepherd boy, he's out with the flocks. I'll call him in. And God tells Samuel, this is who I've chosen to be king. And the Bible tells us about David, that David was a man after God's own heart. He had such a special relationship with the king of the universe, that he was a man after God's own heart. But even David was imperfect. Even David had his mistakes. And what we're going to talk about today in 2 Samuel 11 is one of the stories that haunted him for the rest of his life. You read it in the Psalms that he's writing. This, this story just this haunts him how he failed God and what he did. And, and we're going to look at the story, and I promise you're saying, Brian, well, David's not a woman. Well, yeah, no, he's not. That's right. But I promise you we're going to get there. So chapter 11. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when the kings go forth to battle... 
that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath, Rabbah, and David tarred, tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one of them said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came into him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanliness, and she returned unto her house. So here's what we've got with David. David's kind of already in the wrong spot. Now at this time, wars didn't happen in the wintertime. It gets too muddy, it's too cold, it's too, too hard to keep an army put together. And so in the springtime, the kings would send their armies out and the war would begin again. And they would fight from spring, summer, and fall and winter. It's like they hit a giant pause button on the war. Everybody went home. We'll start again when the weather gets nicer. And so it's springtime and David has sent out his whole army and they're all fighting. Now here's where David made one of his mistakes. It was common practice and where David should have been is the king should have accompanied his army army, but David stayed at his home. He didn't want to give up his palace to go on the war path. He stayed there. And one night, he was having trouble sleeping. That ever happened to y'all? Like you toss and turn in the bed, you can't sleep, you have bad dreams, and finally you're just like, forget it, I'm just going to get up and watch TV. I'm going to go to work at 3 o'clock in the morning. You just You can't sleep that night? It happens, it happens to me quite often. That's where David is. So David's restless, he's tossing and turning, probably because he's not where he's supposed to be. And he goes up on the roof, and he's just pacing back and forth over the roof, and, and the roof of the palace would have looked out over the entire city. And while he's there, we see the woman that's going to be the topic of today. The woman lasted in Matthew chapter 1, a, a lady named Bathsheba. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and check that genealogy, it doesn't list her name personally, but it does say the wife of the Hittite, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But David's watching this, and, and he sees her bathing, and what he should have done is, of course, looked away. Obviously, you know, privacy, but David's eyes lock on her. And this is what it says. It says that she was beautiful to look upon. And David starts to ask around about her. Now, we know where this story is going, right? Like, David's fixing to enter what I call caveman logic. Now, ladies, you may or may not know this about your husbands, but men have the ability to go straight caveman logic. And some of you are saying, well, Brian, I know that. My husband never leaves caveman logic. He stays there all the time. Well, okay, that may be true. But he's fixing to enter caveman logic. And this is how caveman logic works. Is every bit of sense of right and wrong goes out of you, and you just think like a caveman. David's sitting here, and he goes, hmm, her pretty. Me king, me take. Like that's David's entire thought process in this. Her pretty, me king, me take. And that's how the Bible lays it out. He sees something beautiful and he says, I want that. And so he starts to ask around about her. And eventually we know, of course, he's going to call her to himself. They're going to have a child together. But we learn some things about Bathsheba, which is who we're actually focusing on more than David here. Number one, we learn that she is the wife of, uh, the wife of Uriah. Now, that may not mean much to you and me, but if you go other places in the Bible and you look to figure out who Uriah is, Uriah was one of what David called his 37 mighty men. And what David had is he had this, this group of warriors that were like the first special forces in the world. Listen, Chris, uh, Chris Kyle and American Sniper had nothing on these guys. These are the guys that when they go to battle and people are like, uh, that army has giants. They call the 37 mighty men and they fight the giants. One of these men was responsible in one battle for killing 800 different people. Three of these men one time when David commented that I want a drink of water from a well in a Pacific city, three of them infiltrated the city and fought their way to the 
well just to retrieve the king a drink. So Uriah was a mighty fighting man, but most specifically, he was close to David. And so this is Uriah's wife that we're looking at with Bathsheba. Secondly, it tells us that he is the daughter, or she is the daughter of Eliam. If you look in the Bible, this is another one of David's mighty men, another one who fights in this, this group of 37 special forces warriors. And if you dig just a little deeper, you find out that she is the granddaughter of, um, I practiced this all morning, Ekheth Ophil. <laughs> I can't say the name. I practiced it all morning and had it which is one of David's senior advisors. And so what we look with Bathsheba is we see her as part of a prominent family. This lady has her husband, her father, and her grandfather have direct access to the king at all times. It's like me telling you, um, yes, my dad and my wife and my grandfather, they all work in the West Wing of the White House. They meet with the president daily. They, they know him personally. They don't call him Trump. They call him Donald. That's the, that's the kind of family that she comes from. And as we've been looking at this Outcast series... She doesn't really fit, does she? She doesn't fit in the outcast here. She, she's a prominent family. They're probably very wealthy. If you compare that to Tamar, who was widowed twice, Rahab, who lived in between the walls and was a lady of the night, and Ruth, who was a pagan living in Israel after being widowed, Bathsheba doesn't fit that particular model. But if you look at what happens to Bathsheba, at the hurt she's going to carry around, you can see that she fought, fought, fills into that outcast model. See, when David looks at her, all he sees is beauty. It's all, that's all the Bible says about her. She was beautiful to look upon. It doesn't say that David flirted with her and he liked her mind. It didn't say that they fell in love. Literally, David's standing on the roof of his, of his palace, looking out across his city, watching someone that doesn't know they're being watched. All he sees is beauty. doesn't care about anything else of Bathsheba. He doesn't care that she's married. He calls her up there and will just be delicate, and he gratifies his lust with her. So let's break down what really happened here because Bathsheba classically has been kind of pictured as like the seductress. Like, like she's up on the roof and she's taking a bath and she knows people can see her and she's pretending that, no, that she doesn't know but she's kind of secretly enjoying it. Classically, if you go all the way back to paintings in the medieval times, that's, that's how Christians have kind of read this story. Like, like Bathsheba is at fault here. But if you actually dig into the biblical story, that's not true. For one, if I ask you, where was Bathsheba bathing at, what would you say? Many of you would probably say, well, she was on her roof. Isn't that what the Bible says? But, but if you read the Bible, that's something that we've misunderstood. She was not on her roof. She was actually down in a courtyard. It doesn't say that. It says David was on the roof, not Bathsheba. And so we start to get a different picture of how this first interaction happened. David's on the top of the palace. Archaeological evidence suggests the palace sat on a hill. He looks out over the city, and he can look down into houses. And at this time, houses were built in a square with a courtyard, an outdoor courtyard in the middle of the house. This was the place where people would have taken care of their private matters. There's no running water to have a bath inside. And so Bathsheba, in the privacy of her own home, in this outdoor courtyard where nobody should be able to see unless they're looking down from above, Bathsheba is spied upon by David. Secondly, Bathsheba, it tells us later in verse 4, that she was cleansed from her, um, or her uncleanliness. She was purified. And so that tells us that Bathsheba was going through a once-monthly purification bath. Anytime a man or a woman, we'll just say this, secreted some kind of fluid, there, there was a process for them to go through before they could be considered ceremonial, ceremonially cleaned. And that's what Bathsheba was doing. So David is spying on this very intimate moment of Bathsheba and her obedience to God and doing what it takes to be pleasing to God. 
And so if we look at Bathsheba and we say, oh, it's, it's her fault, the Bible just doesn't back it up. As a matter of fact, there's not a scrap of biblical evidence that says Bathsheba did anything wrong in this entire story. That brings us to our first take-home truth, and it's very important that we understand this. Bathsheba was a victim. We can't understand the rest of the story if we don't understand this. Bathsheba was the victim of the story. And it doesn't matter how you try to twist Scripture, there's no escaping that. See, David is the king of Israel. Not, not, not an important guy, not a rich guy, not some guy walking down the road. He is the king of Israel, and no person in that country would deny him anything that he asked. And so when he calls her up to him, she doesn't have the ability to say no. So let's look at the position that Bathsheba is in. Number one, her husband has gone to war. She waits daily for news that maybe he could have been killed. She's been called up by this king to, to come into his chambers to do something inappropriate with. She's been, uh, there's no other word for it, she's been assaulted. She's been taken advantage of. And even worse, it's by a family friend. A man who God chose to be a leader. A person who Israel had high respect for of leading in the way that God would tell him to. And she's, she's been abused by him. That's a hard topic to talk about. But it's all too common in our society today. Turn on the news and watch it for more than one day. And I guarantee you that you will find uh, plenty of stories of men in positions of power and prominence. Using that position of power and prominence to, to, um, to abuse women. And so David's only interest in her beauty leads to this woman of prominence who's married to a war hero becoming the victim. Now, for most people in Israel, they would have loved to be Bathsheba. She was beautiful. She, she was perfect in every way. She, she came from a family of prominence, which means it was prob probably a rich family. She doesn't fit what we would think of as an outcast, but the story tells us that she was a victim. She was used and abused. And that brings us to our second take-home truth, is that status does not dictate circumstances. Status does not dictate circumstances. When we've been going through the story, it seems like maybe we've been focusing on certain people. Maybe it's the people that have made poor decisions in their lives. Maybe they're the outcasts in our society. Maybe it's the people who, who struggle financially. Maybe those are the ones that are the outcasts in our society. Maybe it's the people that we work with that just bless their hearts. They're just unlikable. Maybe they're the outcasts that we've been focusing on. It's the people that have had a hard life and when we've been focusing on them being the outcasts. But the truth is, is that the outcast is the police officer that pulled us over this morning. The bank president that we walk by in the grocery store. The office managers and the teachers are our children. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that almost every person in this world has a story of pain and abuse and brokenness somewhere in their life that they carry with them. And so when we talk about this, this need for God's love for the outcast, it doesn't just mean the lower part of our society. It means everybody who our society has failed. And we live in a society that has failed us all in one way or another. In the way that we've experienced love and the people that we've lost and, and the people who have robbed us or taken advantage of us in some way. And when we walk through this city, we will never know the struggles of the people that we walk by. I would be willing to bet that you don't know all of the struggles of the people that you walked by to get to your pew this morning. People broken and hurting, and they don't put it out there, but they, but they carry it heavily. See, the truth is, most people live an outcast lifestyle to some degree, even if they don't look like it. 
up here on the screen, I've got a picture coming up. This is this is Melissa Faced, and you can find her testimony on her website. You can find it online um, from Model to Missionary is the name of the video where she gives her testimony, and, and she'll tell you this story that she was in an abusive relationship outside of high school. Obviously, you can see she's extraordinarily beautiful. Um, she, she got hooked up with the wrong guy, and he was emotionally and physically abusive to her, and, and she left that relationship just broken, just, just hurting in every way. And so she decided she was going to self-medicate her pain and saying, I'm never going to put myself in a situation where anybody would underappreciate me like that again. Never again will somebody treat me that way. And so she pursued a lifestyle of modeling. And she was an instant success. Almost, almost overnight as she entered modeling, I don't mean she went and walked down one or two runways in New York City. Melissa was on the cover of magazines. She dated famous and rich athletes. She lived the lifestyle of the Hollywood elite. She went to all of the parties and, and lived the life that many, many Americans dream of. She's beautiful. She's successful. She's on the cover of magazines. She's, she hangs out with rich people. She, she's got everything. I want to be her. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. I want to be the him version of her. Is that a little better? I want to be the guy on the magazine with the ripped abs. I want to be the person who's rich. I want to be the guy on the football team that gets paid $2 million a game to catch a ball. It didn't happen for me. I'm here with you guys. Honestly, I'd rather be here. But this is the American dream. This is, this is what everybody seems to want. And we look at her and goes, she's not an outcast. She, she has everything you could possibly ever ask for, for. But she'll tell you that inwardly she was full of self-hatred. She hated her life. She hated everything about it. She was bulimic, which is an eating disorder that, that tells you that you're never skinny enough. And it's very, very unhealthy. She was an alcoholic because her lifestyle revolved around parties and trying to drown the pain with alcohol. It was about this time where she's going through this. She's getting some success. She was, um, she was offered her big break. In the modeling world, there is no bigger break than this. She, she was approached by a magazine publication that wanted her to pose. And I won't even dignify it with the name of it, but it's a magazine that focuses on women that men buy. It's the bunny. Most of us know the bunny. She was approached by this publication. And, and in her world, this is the big break. Instantly, everybody knows your name. It, it's a resume builder that, that I posed for this magazine. And she started to have an identity crisis. Is that all I am? Is beauty? Just, just something for people to look at? Is this something I want to do? And on one hand, you can't turn down an opportunity like that. And on the other hand... What if I have kids? Those pictures will always be out there. What if I get married? Those pictures will always be out there. And so she struggled with her identity in a world who told her, you are just your beauty. That's all your value is, is for people to look at. How did the Bible put it about Bathsheba? Beautiful to look upon. She has a lot in common with Bathsheba. You can take it back to the outline, RB. The world seeing nothing but beauty, being valued not for who she is, but what she can provide for, for men being broken. If we go back to this story, David thinks he's got away with it. He had his caveman moment. Um, her pretty, me king, me take. He took and he sent her home. And he thinks, well, nothing's happened until he gets a letter from Bathsheba and says, um, I'm pregnant. And this is, a, this is a bigger deal than, than it might be in today's world. In this world, a woman who, who cheats on her husband, who gets pregnant by another man, there was a penalty of death for this. And, and so Bathsheba sends this letter to David going, we've got to do something because if my husband comes home and finds this out, I'm in trouble. And, and she kind of also hinted, I'm going to tell him it was you. And that's not going to be good for you, King David. That's not going to be good for you. And so David starts scheming. 
I got to get out of this. You ever scheme to try to get out of your sin? Ever made it worse trying to scheme to get out of your sin? He starts scheming, and so he calls her husband Uriah home and says, Uriah, I've got to talk to you. Come home. And he has this fake meeting with him. He says, okay, uh, before you go back to battle, why don't you, your wife probably misses you a lot. Why don't you, you know, go, go see her? In the hopes that he would go and that Uriah would come back from war thinking this baby was his that he had fathered on that night. But Uriah refuses. He says, I am not going to go home to be with my wife when my brothers are fighting in the field. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have the comfort of my home. I will sleep on the porch until you send me back. I'm not going down there. And so David thinks he has no choice. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note. And it says, make sure that Uriah gets killed in the next battle. And so David, in an attempt to cover up his original sin, David kills Bathsheba's husband. Let's look at where she's at now. She's been assaulted by the king. She's pregnant. She's widowed. And then, as soon as her period of mourning is over, she's called to come marry David. And you may be looking at the story going, oh, well, God worked it out. She's going to be a queen. Everything worked out for her. Well, first off, you never get rid of past trauma. And so it doesn't matter what happened in her life, that trauma still happened to her. But secondly, she was going to be one of at least eight women that David was married to, with countless other concubines, which were like second-class wives. And so thinking that Bathsheba is going to be the queen is not quite correct. She's going to be one of many of David's property. David's gotten away with it again. He's covered it up. Enter Nathan. If you turn over to, to chapter 12 here, we're going to read what Nathan has to say here in just a second. Nathan is a prophet, at this, a prophet at this time. And what a prophet does is a prophet speaks the voice of God into the world. God comes to a prophet and says, deliver this message to my people. And so here comes, here comes Nathan and he's about to speak into this situation. Or if Nathan's speaking into it, we can say God is about to speak into this situation. Nathan enters the story. And he tells David, his close friend, and he's an advisor to David, he tells David this story, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock and out of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man and was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So Nathan comes to David and says, I want to tell you a story. He said, we got two men in Israel. Um, one of them's rich. He has many, many flocks, many sheep, many goats. He's got everything you could ask for. And then there's another man. There's a second man that has just, just, just one. Just one sheep is all he has. And, and the rich man has a guest. And so the rich man says, I've got to take a lamb and I've got to cook it for him. And it's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. And we're going to have this feast. But I don't want to really sacrifice one of my many. And so what he does is he goes to the poor man and he takes his only lamb. He takes the only one he has, and he cooks it for his guests instead of giving up one his. David is furious, y'all. David hops up and says, this man will be put to death. Bring him here now. He must be put to death. He's going to pay him back four times what he took. This is inappropriate. And this is when Nathan slaps him in the face and goes, David, you are that man. You are that man. You are the man who has many flocks. And Uriah was the man who had one perfect, loved, uh, beloved lamb to him. And Bathsheba was that lamb. And you, you murdered to cover up that you stole from him. 
And David at that moment, he, he falls down and he repents. And I love that about David. But I want you to look at the difference in how the Bible talks about Bathsheba when David talks about her. And how the Bible talks about Bathsheba when the voice of God speaks through Nathan. See, when David sees her, it says she was beautiful to look upon. But if you look into that, that parable where that lamb represents Bathsheba, that, that lamb represents um, her, her life, it tells us that she was desired because she was bought. She was nourished. She ate off the table of her owner. She was cared for. There was a connection, like a pet-like connection. And, and she was provided for. See, this is our, our second take home, our third take home truth here is, is that God's voice speaks to our special identity. See, God saw, David saw only a woman, but God saw a precious value, her individual, her individual, a precious, precious person with her individual value. I love it if you put it this way. To David, Bathsheba was only a lamb. To God, Bathsheba was a special lamb. David falls down after hearing it that way, realizing what a horrible sin he committed, and he repents. And that's what I love about David is he didn't spend time trying to argue. He didn't try to say, well, I did it for this reason. Why? He just, he just falls down and he apologizes to God. And God, I can't believe that's the kind of person I am. Lord, will you forgive me? And there's just a mini lesson in there. It's never too big for God to forgive, and it's never too late to repent. If we go back to Melissa, she's struggling with her identity. What, what am I going to do? I can't turn down this opportunity to be in this magazine. But also, I just I can't be that. I've got to be more than just beauty, just more than just something that people look at. So what do I do? And she thinks back to the last time she was happy, and she'll tell you this. She says, the last time I was happy was as a little girl. As a little girl, my parents took me to church. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. And so I thought, I've got to go back to what made me happy. And she, and she goes to a church and just randomly walks into a church, just looking for some kind of peace in this decision that's looming over her. And the church was advertising a young adults uh, retreat, get away with some other young adults and, and just get to know them. And she said, I felt like I should go to it and just kind of break away from my lifestyle and be with these people as I try to figure out what to do with this decision. And, and she goes to this and during what they called God time, when they had a, a Bible and a journal and they just sat down and they read, she said, I opened up and I ended up in the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea tells about a prophet who God picked a wife for. And he picked for this man a lady of the nine. And of course, she wouldn't give up her lifestyle to be married to Hosea. And Hosea goes to God and he says, God, I, I, I can't do this. You called me to love this woman and I love her with all my heart, but she cheats on me and she breaks my heart all the time. And the Bible, or in the book of Hosea, God comes back to Hosea and says, I know. So that's how I feel about my people. I love them with all of my heart, but they continually run away from me and they continually break my heart. But this is the message of Hosea is that my love never runs out. And Melissa heard that story and she heard God say to her, he said, you are that woman that's been running from me. You are that woman who has broken my heart. You, you are that woman who, who, who just lives every way that I've commanded you not to. And she broke down in that moment and she became a follower of Christ. That decision became very easy since then. She said, no, thank you, I'm not interested. Actually, she left the life completely. No more modeling, no more famous athletes. And she has devoted her life to telling people about what the voice of God says about them like she heard in that moment, that, that he loves her. See, what she heard was that her identity was found in the amount of the love God had for her. God came to her and said, you are special. You are not just beautiful. You're not just eye candy. You are loved. And so this is our question as a church today. Have we heard the voice of God clearly on this? 
Have we as individuals heard the voice of God clearly on this? That value is not in how much money you have or what you look like or how you dress or how big your house is or how successful you are or what titles you have. And value is in the, in the precious love of Jesus Christ for us. Do we have the heart of God when we go out into the world? Do we see people in that way? When we pass somebody and when we see them as, as a person of status or a person with no status, do we view them equally because they have the same value to God? But we have to also ask this. Have we heard the voice of God clearly on this issue in our own lives? Because so many of us, though we may say that we believe that we are the sum of our own parts, we're trying to earn God's love. We're trying to earn the love of people around us. And God says, you don't have to do that. See, we're all like that wife in Hosea, running away from God and breaking his heart. But listen to me carefully. God's love for you has never faded. God's love for you has never wavered. There's never been a moment when you got close to making God think, I don't want them. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you think you are or are not special about. His love for you has never changed. And this is what he's asking every person here today. Will you love me back? There's some of us sitting here today and God's been asking us for a while, will you love me back? Will you love me more than the lifestyle that you have? Will you walk away from your life to love me as much as I love you? And I'm just, I'm just at a, it's, it's time. It's time. And so this is the question as we go into this. There's, there's no reason to run. There's no reason to fight. Are you hearing the voice of God say to you, I love you. Will you love me back? Brother Danny. And if you are, now is the time to accept that. I would love to walk you through what it means to have faith in God, to, to trust in Jesus Christ's death, and to accept that love. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Would you please stand?